there's speculation on my part again, but this could be in line with some of the overall trend lines away from what I'd call traditional civil space emphasis within Russia. That would be at the far edge of kind of speculation uh, for me to, you know, really, it is in fact speculation, but the signs are kind of pointing in that direction that uh, this is more than just a personnel shakeup or could be more than that. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Welcome back, podcasters. A lot happened this week. On Wednesday, the Space Foundation reported that by the end of 2021, the space economy grew to $469 billion. That's a growth rate of 9% compared to the prior year. And then on Thursday, the Biden administration announced that it's tapping Lieutenant General Chance Saltzman to take over from General John Raymond in leading the United States Space Force. Raymond is retiring after 38 years in uniform. He served the last three as the first Space Force Chief of Space Operations. Saltzman is currently the Deputy Chief of Space Operations for Operations Cyber and Nuclear. But earlier in the week, America's competitors in space were making their own news. This week opened with China launching its Wentian Laboratory module up to the Tiangong Space Station. To get that cabin off the ground, China used its most powerful rocket, the Long March 5BY3. It's massive, 23 tons. But here's the thing. When that make of rocket goes up, it comes back down. And for some reason, China can't control the re-entry. This rocket splashed into the Indian Ocean Saturday. In 2020, it crashed into the Ivory Coast. While no one has been injured, it's left a lot of folks peeved. But the topic of this week's podcast is Russia. President Putin met with his new Russian Space Corporation Director General Yuri Borisov. In the Kremlin's readout, Borisov said Russia would quit the International Space Station sometime after 2024. To understand why Dmitry Rogozin was removed from Roscosmos, who Borisov is, and the security issues Russia's departure from the ISS raises, I spoke with retired Air Force Brigadier General Bruce McClintock and Jan Osberg. Both of them are with the RAND Corporation. And also Chris Stone of the Mitchell Institute. Here's our conversation. Hi, Bruce. Chris, it's great to have you both back. Hey, Laura. It's good to be back. Thanks very much. And Jan. It's a pleasure to welcome you to the downlink. Hi, Laura. Uh, glad to be here and uh, looking forward to our conversation. Bruce, it's been a while since you were last on the podcast. So please take a moment to introduce yourself and the RAND Corporation Space Enterprise Initiative. And please don't forget your time in Russia. Now, thanks, Laura. So the short version is I spent about 30 years in the Air Force serving as a pilot, primarily an A 10 pilot. I was a weapons officer and a test pilot, so I got to fly a lot of other planes as well. And throughout my career, I spent a significant amount of time studying space policy and capabilities before uh, spending about two years in Russia as the U.S. defense attache in Moscow from 2014 to 2016. Uh, I've been with RAND since then, and uh, I'm a senior researcher working in a variety of areas related to Eurasia, air power, and space. 
and I have the privilege of leading RAND's Space Enterprise Initiative, where I work to better connect our space research and researchers internally and externally. And externally, that means not just across the U.S. government, where we have some significant contacts, but also with industry and with select international partners. And I, I offer that last distinction because uh, I love this role since it allows me to help coordinate research across RAND, but also uh, work to initiate research that has long-term implications for space sustainability and security. And Jan, you're also from RAND. This is your first time on the podcast. So tell us about yourself and what you do at RAND. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm a senior engineer at RAND. I've been at RAND for uh, about 15 years now. And uh, I work mostly on defense and homeland security topics. Uh, and they are mostly kind of the technical angles because you know my background is aerospace engineering. But uh, yeah, I also contribute to, to other projects, uh, kind of the way that Durand does things in a very interdisciplinary sort of, of way. Uh, so I've worked on everything from, for example, analyzing the threat posed by small UAS to uh, counterinsurgency and resistance in the Baltic states and how that could deter the Russians. <clears throat> but my, my uh, you know, kind of educational background and, and also what I get really excited about is uh, manned spaceflight and, and, you know, humanity expanding into space. And Jan, you also have a deep background in the design and functionality of inhabited space systems. I mean, you've been on multiple expeditions to some Mars analog research facilities in places that are none too hospitable to humans, like Devon Island in the Canadian high Arctic. Take a second and tell us a bit about your experience doing that. Yeah, certainly. Uh, those were definitely good times. Uh, and, and I still think back to those uh, crazy weeks and months of, you know, playing Mars Explorer in uh, the, the desert south of Utah, and then also on Devon Island, uh, north, uh, close to the North Pole. Uh, that tied into my dissertation research. Uh, my dissertation is on the uh, conceptual design of inhabited space systems. So I basically brought together the aerospace engineering aspects and elements of terrestrial architecture because, you know, obviously architects uh, have a lot of experience with designing spaces for humans to, to live and work in, uh, sometimes in extreme environments. And so we did this uh, series of, of simulated Mars missions with the uh, Mars Society. They've, they've been pushing and working towards you know, exploring and ultimately colonizing Mars uh, for several decades now. But yeah, so they run these simulated Mars bases and um, several times I had the uh, opportunity to go there uh, either as a crew member or then twice as a crew commander. Uh, and yeah, while we were there, we basically, you know, pretended to live on Mars under, you know, simulated conditions. Every time we went outside, we put on a spacesuit. On Devon Island, we also had to watch out for polar bears. That's hopefully something we won't have to worry about on actual Mars. But it, it was a great opportunity to add a little bit to the science and the knowledge about, you know, how the first Mars expeditions might work out and how to prepare for it to, to make them successful. And Chris, you are a regular guest, but take a sec to introduce yourself to those who are new to the podcast. Sure, I'm Christopher Stone. I am the Senior Fellow for Space Studies at the Mitchell Institute Space Power Advantage Center of Excellence in Washington, D.C. area. And uh, I'm primarily focused on uh, national security space related topics, 
from usually uh, strategic or operational levels, but also uh, from the policy sphere as well. Um, as I've, I've worked in various roles uh, for on the military side for almost 20 years, and I've worked in the DC area doing various policy uh, things um, since for about 12 years. So a little bit of everything in my background. So this should be a good discussion. Okay, now with the introductions done, let's get to the subject at hand. Russia says it's leaving the International Space Station sometime after 2024. While that certainly grabbed headlines, there's a lot more to this story, and it involves kind of Machiavellian court politics. Two weeks ago, Vladimir Putin sacked the director general of Russia's space programs. That had been Dmitry Rogozin. Bruce, can you tell us a bit about Rogozin and why was he removed? Sure, uh, Laura. We've discussed uh, Rogozin before on a previous uh, podcast where we talked about the overall decline of Russia's uh, civil space sector. Uh, Rogozin is a well-known, close Putin ally, and one could say that his loyalty to Putin has been rewarded for years with key positions in Putin's government, even if he has a track record of failure in the eyes of many. So the bumper sticker for that is uh, loyalty over performance uh, when it comes to Putin, right? So prior to being at Roscosmos, uh, where he's just left, for he's been there for the last four years, from 2018 to 2022, he was previously the deputy prime minister of Russia in charge of both the defense and space industry. And that was a seven-year tenure position. He was actually in that position while I was in Moscow. Prior to that, he was Russia's ambassador to NATO from 2008 to 2011. Uh, he's regularly characterized as far right, often characterized as overly bombastic, and I think fairly. Uh, his rhetoric tends to be very colorful, but usually it's nothing more than bluster. Uh, one of the most famous examples I, I can offer you goes all the way back to 2014, and it also re uh, has reference to the uh, International Space Station. Uh, so that was uh, the first phase of the Crimean conflict, if you will, uh, when they took over Crimea and then had sanctions imposed, uh, Russia had sanctions imposed on it by the West, and uh, Rogozin himself was actually sanctioned. And in that, at, at that time, in 2014, he famously said on his Twitter account that the U.S. should consider using a trampoline to get its astronauts to the International Space Station. And that's because at the time, uh, the United States was dependent on Russia for launch uh, Soyuz capsules to get astronauts up there. That since changed. Uh, back to my point about a lot of bluster, but not a lot of follow through, Russia, in fact, honored their commitments over the last eight years in terms of uh, both International Space Station activities and uh, launching, when we needed them, uh, U.S. astronauts to the space station. So that's that characterizes Rogozin. He's He tends to uh, oversee organizations as part of a normal pattern of rotation within the Russian administration uh, for loyalists. And somehow they manage to, in our system, one might say, how do they survive uh, when they don't perform and there's a lot of corruption and other things going occurring under their watch? But it goes back to the loyalty over performance statement that I met earlier. And where is Rogozin headed, do you think? You know, there's some speculation about that. Uh, it is certainly not something that uh, anybody knows firsthand. Uh, kind of two schools of thought. And I think uh, let's offer the more uh, likely one is uh, the possibility that he's going to get placed in somewhere in the Putin inner circle, uh, some kind of presidential administration type of position. There's also speculation in uh, Russian media outlets that Rogozin might be 
somebody on a short list to take over as like an administrative head of one of the uh, Ukraine regions that Russia has invaded and, and occupies. So there's a full spectrum there. One could possibly safely rule out that it's because he's underperforming. That's just not the way the track record's gone in the past. Again, he's underperformed. Now, he has been more bombastic in the last several months since the invasion uh, of Ukraine, making some pretty serious statements to include references to the use of nuclear weapons, which is way out of his portfolio. But the pattern is that Putin tends to seem to like those kind of statements because he can have Rogozin out there saying these things that are really off the reservation and not have to worry about responding to them. So short answer, it's not clear where he's going, but that's kind of the, the lay of the land on options. And his replacement, Yuri Borisov, I mean, he got demoted from deputy prime minister for the defense and aerospace sectors. He's following in Rogozin's footsteps. You know, what's his story? So he's, uh, Yuri Borisov is definitely uh, nowhere near as well known as Rogozin, uh, although that's changing now uh, with his current position. For the, he's less well known to those outside of the Russia kind of tracking circles. And as you said, he has a very similar career trajectory with, I think, an interesting twist in his background compared to Rogozin. Uh, a little bit of bias as a military veteran myself, but Borisov is a military veteran, somebody with 20 years of military service. Uh, that include, included uh, time training at the Radio Electronics Higher Command School. And he went on later to actually get a degree in mathematics from Moscow State University. So, whereas I would characterize Rogozin is a pure politician who is a loyalist. Borisov is somebody who is a loyalist who also has technical uh, credibility and military experience. He, as you mentioned, just to uh, make sure we cover those details, uh, it's a very similar career trajectory. It's almost like he's following uh, in, the, in the footsteps of Rogozin from one job to the next. He was, uh, Borisov was Deputy Minister of Defense from 2012 to 2018. And then he was the deputy prime minister of Russia from 2018 to 2022. So less, less is known about him. I actually heard his name a few times when I was in Russia from people that I talked to, some of my interlocutors, uh, when he had responsibilities in the Ministry of Defense. Uh, and uh, I would say if I had to kind of generally characterize uh, the way people referred to him, it was kind of hard-edged, uh, somebody that was actually going to get things done. Uh, so maybe bet more of a performer than... Uh, Rogozin, but that doesn't seem to be his kind of public persona. And why has Putin done all of this firing and demoting and reshuffling? I mean, how does this affect the Russian defense and aerospace portfolio and its space programs? Well, I, so my personal opinion about this, and it's not, it's in, informed to some extent, but not very well informed. So not a not a not a lot of analysis here, but I think a few things are noteworthy about this most recent shakeup. Now, first of all, as we talked about earlier, it may just signal a path to other op options for Rogozin, right? If uh, Putin is trying to figure out things to do for uh, Ukraine, maybe that was just the way to open the door. Uh, it, it could be the in inner circle options that we talked about. So it may have just been, we need to move Rogozin, and the way we'll do it is by go ahead and continue the following the footsteps approach with Borisov. There may be something more to that. I, there's speculation on my part again, but this could be in line with some of the overall trend lines away from what I'd call traditional civil space emphasis within Russia. That would be at the far edge of kind of speculation uh, for me to, you know, really, it is in fact speculation, but the signs are kind of pointing in that direction that uh, this is more than just a personnel shakeup or could be more than that. 
Putin met with Borisov on Tuesday. The Kremlin's readout included a reaffirmation that 2024 was the year that they, or rather after 2024, was the year that they were going to leave the International Space Station. Yet today, Reuters has a contradictory quote from the Roscosmos website. The quote reportedly was from a Vladimir Solovyov. He's the flight engineer for the space station's Russian segment. He reportedly said Russia would stick with the ISS until 2028. Why is there this confusion? So I I think the first point uh, I would make about this kind of Kremlin readout and uh, later statements that I think is arguably more important than the the near-term confusion is that at least in his opening days, uh, this reflected a closer level of coordination between Borisov and Putin. Right, because I've talked about earlier, and, and it may just because they knew each other so well. Uh, but Rogozin is famous for making these really outlandish statements, but there was really never any kind of support from the Kremlin or Putin personally. But in this case, Putin backed up uh, what was said as part of a, an introductory kickoff, welcome to the job type of meeting. So, and I would also kind of on the details of the timing, uh, I, I think what's important to note is that I, I actually don't think that there is. Uh, any real disconnect technically between the Kremlin readout and what others are saying. Because if you parse the words as I've seen them, the Kremlin statement actually said after 2024. So it's open-ended, right? It's not like it's 1 January 2024. It could be any time after that, right? So they've opened the door to themselves that allows them to do things along the timelines that uh, align with what the uh, flight director said. Now, there's even if there is not technically a disconnect, what they've done is they've kind of won the battle of the narrative, if you will, because look at us, we're here talking about this right now, as are NASA and others. Uh, But I think really the technical details of this are really not as much of a tremendous concern if it's an after 2024 kind of date. Uh, And Jan can talk certainly more than I can to the specific technical details. So I I would make more out of the fact that Putin was aligned with what Borisov said, uh, that it was open-ended, and that we can likely adapt if it's some date after 2024. The readout also said Russia's main effort is to build a Russian space station. Why not just shift their human spaceflight operations to the Chinese space station, the Tiangong? It can't be just because Mandarin is the only language spoken on board, or is it? So, uh, Again, kind of a top-level comment I'd make about this is uh, Russia is very good at making aspirational claims, but has more trouble delivering on those claims, right? So it's easy to say now that we, Russia, intend to build our own space station because we are a great space power, and that may never come to fruition. Now, to be somewhat fair, that's not something that's uncommon, at least in terms of timelines in the United States, right? We will say things like, we are going to launch this mission to either low-Earth orbit or the moon or beyond in a given time frame when the technical experts will tell you right away, that's not a realistic timeline. So it's not just the Russians. They're probably the worst at it. But my own view is that this is just a way to uh, save face uh, by saying, you know, we are doing this on our own uh, because we are a great space power. Now, my own view is given the declining state of Russia's civil space sector and the burden of sanctions, it seems highly unlikely that they're going to achieve the goal of building their own space station. As far as the partnering with the Chinese goes, that's that's a whole other conversation. Uh, they have a hesitancy to partner with the Chinese on a variety of different areas, and the space station is likely another one of those. Uh, 
and I would offer, I think it's because Russia realized the growing power of China overall and in space specifically. Uh, and they've sensed that, and we've seen signals of that kind of Russian sense of vulnerability to China and other terrestrial areas. Although they have signed some accords with China to do things like moon exploration. So it's not an all or nothing kind of deal. But a space station, you know, it's, it's truly got to be a partnership if you have multiple entities participating. Jan, you're an engineer and an expert in the design of human habitats in space. What happens when and if the Russians leave the space station? So there are multiple ways in, in which this could play out. Uh, and uh, first things first, uh, the, the new director of Roscosmos, um, you know, basically giving us a two-ish year warning uh, will make things uh, will make it will make it more likely that things will end up on the more benign side of the spectrum uh, than you know based on Rogozin's angry tweets uh, that you know made it sound like they were literally about to pull the plug and you know go home within you know weeks or months. Uh, so having a couple of years of lead time and knowing that it's coming uh, puts us in a much better position. Uh, that being said. Uh, just like, you know, quote unquote, after 2024 is a pretty vague statement. Uh, it's also at this point, uh, pretty much unknown which way the Russians will pull out. Uh, we all hope that it's going to be in a, you know, I don't want to say cordial, but in a at least, you know, cooperative way. But they, of course, uh, can also make things go uh, quite badly. So uh, let's go over the the uh, ways in which this could play out in, in order of, let's say, increasing badness. So uh, if, if they you know, decide to, to remain relative team players, they just say, you know, goodbye, we're out, no more cosmonauts, no more you know, launching new modules or new you know, progress or Soyuz missions. But leaving the, the Russian modules in place, for example, uh, since the, the US paid for one of them anyways, the, uh, the FGB, that that should be manageable as long as NASA and its uh, you know other space station partners find a way to keep reboosting the station. Uh, so the station flies at about 400 kilometers uh, altitude, and uh, there is still a very very thin but still non-zero residual atmosphere there. And since the station is so huge, you know, football field size with the solar panels and everything, uh, even that that little bit of atmosphere. Uh, causes a drag, which over you know weeks or months uh, takes out you know energy, uh, takes out velocity, and therefore the orbit lowers, and and so it's kind of a a vicious cycle. You know the 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 lower their orbit, the higher the drag, the lower their orbit, the faster their orbit lowers. So uh, depending on you know where we are in the sun cycle, uh, how how far how dense the atmosphere is at that altitude, about twice a year at least the ISS needs a major reboost, uh, more than what the onboard uh, you know, thrusters can provide. And so far that has been done mostly with the Russian uh, Progress cargo vehicle. Uh, it has also been done with the European ATV, the Ariane transfer vehicle, but they don't make them anymore, quite literally. And so that's not an option. Lockheed, uh, Northrop Grumman uh, has a resupply vehicle that, that's coming online, the Cygnus. And that has been upgraded over the recent you know, year or so to also provide reboots. And pretty much a month ago, they just proved that they can do it and that it works. But uh, I haven't looked at the exact numbers, so it's not clear that it has enough propulsive capability to fully replace the progress. Uh, 
Um, if you follow Elon Musk's Twitter, um, he, in, in direct response to Rogozin saying, we're going to pull out, so the space station is going to fall down on your head, Elon Musk tweeted basically something to the effect that, yeah, well, we can, we're looking at Cargo Dragon to, to also fill in that gap. Uh, plus, uh, NASA reportedly has an old uh, module called the Interim Propulsion Module, if I remember correctly, uh, that they built towards the very beginning of the space station partnership because back then it was uncertain if the Russians would be able to deliver. Uh, if, if that hardware, or at least that design could be you know, re reused, uh, that could be another option. But again, nothing is really you know, fully assured. And two years uh, is not a long time, especially when you look at you know, government space uh, development programs. So my guess is there would be another commercial crash effort to to do that i mean would the russians like try and disconnect their modules and yeah so, quote unquote take them back to earth yeah so uh, that that to me that would be the the next step uh, actually the the benign handover would also have to involve uh, handing over ground support and ground control operations because right now mm -hmm. that's done you know partly out of uh, russia partly out of uh, you know jac and in houston so from, from what I know, uh, you know, both Russia and NASA can, uh, can run the space station from their side just for, you know, redundancy reasons. Uh, but again, that would require the Russians being good sports about it and, you know, properly handing everything over. Uh, the, the next higher, you know, level of, of badness, so to speak, would be if the Russians, you know, take their ball and go home. So they, remove some of the hardware or try to remove it or at least lock it down um, you know maybe lock down their software so we can't access it and that of course would make things much more difficult on, on our end i'm not involved directly in you know space station programs space station operations i'm more of an outside observer i hope that nasa or at least somebody at nasa has prepared you know contingencies for for those cases but again it, it would add to the complications and then kind of the, the worst level would be if the Russians decide to, you know, get nasty and, and actively damage hardware. Uh, we have a, already had the incident with that, you know, cordless drill hole uh, on one of the Russian modules, which they then tried to blame on American astronauts. That, that you know, could be a possibility if, if they switch on or claim to have another, you know, unfortunate accident with their propulsion system. Like happened, like it happened when they they brought that uh, a new cargo vehicle uh, up to space station last year, and the whole thing went like literally tumbling. Uh, that of course could cause a lot of trouble or destroy the space station, even cause you know loss of crew if, if things go badly. And again, hopefully, uh, you know we have cyber protections and physical protections on our end to make sure they can't mess with our side of the station if they insist on taking that path. It, it's things that, you know, just a few years ago, and especially at the beginning of the program when everything was being designed and built, you know, nobody would have, would have thought about, but, you know, obviously things have been changing. Uh, so again, hopefully somebody somewhere at NASA is, is looking at all these contingencies so that we're ready. So now this is wide open, gentlemen. Does not having Russians on the International Space Station make it a possible target 
I mean, it's still quite fresh in everyone's minds that last November, Russia tested an anti-satellite weapon and destroyed a defunct satellite in low Earth orbit, which is the space station's neighborhood. Well, they did that even while their own cosmonauts were on the station. So um, again, if if they you know try to go that way, uh, there's there's not much to you know prevent that on on the technical or physical side. Uh, this is, would be a question of you know diplomacy, deterrence, uh, thing, things like that. I, I would I would yeah I, I would say that if if that I don't see that coming soon because typically the Russians uh, have always accused a potential target of having military utility before they start threatening it, such as their threat to go kinetic on the GPS constellation last year. Um, so I think if if they ever decided to make the ISS a target, uh, they would have to probably declare that it has some sort of military value that they find objectionable, and then they would reserve the right to protect their interests and things of that sort. Um, that sounds very Cold War esque, with you know back in the days of Almaz and and uh, Salyut and all that kind of stuff, where they had machine guns and stuff on the on their space stations at the time. Um, but right now, I, I don't think that would be necessarily something that would help. But then again, you know, they they've definitely showed their political will, at least to go kinetic if they if they so choose. Yeah, I, I, in my view, this is a really important security consideration for the U.S. and its allies. And that is the what I'll generally characterize as the vulnerability of the International Space Station in the future. So I, I would say, given our conversation earlier, not if, but when Russia withdraws from the ISS, it will have one less reason to think about limiting damage to low Earth orbit writ large, right? So not just the ISS. You've already, we've already talked about a little bit. It's, I think it's important to reiterate. Uh, Jan mentioned it and others, you did too, Laura. You know, November 2021, the Russians conducted a debris-generating anti-satellite test even when they had their own cosmonauts on the International Space Station and put the station at risk and then just kind of blew it off and said, oh, no, there was no risk. You know, that's just, you know, that's not accurate when all the data indicates it was accurate. So another way to look at this, kind of two points on this, you could also say that Russia has not let the high number of their own casualties that they've experienced in Ukraine prevent them from continuing that fight. So what's a few cosmonauts or somebody else's astronauts on the International Space Station? And another point along these lines, they have not shirked from firing artillery rounds at multiple civilian targets in Ukraine, which most good people would think is just absolutely horrendous and unacceptable and, and an action you wouldn't take. Now, having said all that, I think Russia is more likely to, from a strategic perspective, threaten attacks on other low Earth orbit satellites, the kinds, you know, the kinds of targets that Chris mentioned, like surveillance satellites that happen to be in low Earth orbit, even if it results in some kind of a collateral damage risk to the ISS. I, I don't see them strategically doing anything other than maybe threatening the International Space Station, but not taking an action. But they're already demonstrating a willingness to accept collateral damage on human operated and, and occupied uh, space vehicles. I'll also add uh, to what Bruce was saying is that if if you listen to what the Vice Chief of Space Operations, General Thompson, has said, and you look at the historicals of various heads of the NRO, which does our spy satellites and and other other commercial vendors, is that the Russians have been known to to laze 
um, and do other sorts of uh, reversible type of counter space activity, whether it's just for tracking purposes or just to demonstrate that they have the ability just to just to remind people that they're there uh, and that they still view themselves and want others to view themselves as a great space power. And so the other thing I'll add to what Bruce was saying earlier with regards to the change of leadership over the years with Roscosmos is that uh, all their launch bases are ran by the Russian Aerospace Forces, used to be the Russian Space Force. And uh, a couple at least of the recent Roscosmos directors used to be Space Force commanders. Uh, their names escape me right now, but in between the industry leads, like uh, I believe Permanov and, uh, and Rogozin being more of a policy guy, uh, you have had some people that have transferred from the military side over to the Roscosmos side. And in addition, they've been nationalizing um, or renationalizing rather all of their, their space industries, such mm-hmm. as Energia and others into a, a one big package that's state ran, where as in the early 90s, they at least attempted to try to be more of a, a more of a, a commercial, as we would understand it, system of, of more of a capitalist system. So, but you're not seeing that. You're seeing a lot more, a lot more direct access to that by the government. Does this have any other ramifications for security for the thousands of satellites the United States and its allies already have and will have in LEO? I, I think it does create a higher level of risk. Uh, there was already uh, a lot of discussion after the November 2021 ASAT test about you know what, how much is Russia willing to do against space platforms and getting off the International Space Station at some point, moving away from that demonstrates less dependence for the Russians on space. And that's that's a long-held kind of perspective on things that the Russians have less dependence on space. Therefore, they're more likely to leverage what they believe to be the U.S. and the West's greater dependence on space by threatening it or attacking it. So this just is another layer that reinforces that. If they get out of the International Space Station, then how much more do they, re- do they really need space? Well, and, and a quick historical anecdote, one of the main reasons why in 1993 that we pushed to have the Russians on board, um, in addition to adding the RD-180 rocket engines and some other partnerships that we had put together, um, was to try to get that post-Cold War environment to be shaped in a way that wouldn't have Russian rocket scientists and others potentially um, working for rogue states like North Korea and Iran. Nowadays, they're clearly are partnering with them already and with the Chinese additional potential partnerships, which we'll have to see how that pans out given their long history of hot and cold relationships. Um, because of, of that seemingly falling apart, um, it's going to be interesting to see, A, who they partner with and which, which remains um, long-term or not, because the Russians really prefer to be the senior partner, not the junior partner, as a lot of the experiences of just trying to control or, or maintain the space station over the years with the Russians has, has shown in a lot of biographies and books about it. Uh, but then also just to see, you know, how much of the post-Cold War um, space order is going to be surviving and is it time to create a new one or are we going to just be stuck going back to sort of a, a proto-Cold War environment where we we have to be a little more careful with who we partner. And for international prestige, is Russia committing an unforced error by leaving the International Space Station? I mean, yes, I guess 
they intend to build a space station of their own, but knowing that they have some problems with getting parts and machines and chips to make that all happen, it just doesn't seem very real to me. And it seems that it is kind of like setting themselves up for kind of an internationally viewed failure. Yeah. So Laura, my view on this is that uh, Russia's loss of international prestige for its space uh, activities has been underway for over a decade. Their industry has been stagnating and is declining. You talked about the parts issues. So uh, that that's my external, some might call it pessimistic view about how Russia has been doing in space. But the numbers reflect the fact that they are a distant third to the U.S. and China now when it comes to overall space activities, arguably behind others like Starlink, right? Uh, so the other point I'd make about this prestige issue is the prestige is probably more of an internal factor for them. And they have to deal with the fact that there is a contradiction between being on the International Space Station with the United States, seen side by side with U.S. astronauts, while at the same time telling their public that the United States and its Western allies are the enemy. So uh, finally, their war in Ukraine also demonstrates a lack of concern about international prestige overall. Yeah, and it, it might be that the, the Russians these days, you know, see the ISS program and their participation uh, as, as a you know, money sink rather than a money source. Uh, what has changed, the big thing that has changed is that, that we in, in the US now have our own crew launch capability. And so the Russians no longer can rely on those, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars that, that were flowing into their coffers for uh, taking American astronauts to the space station. Uh, as Bruce said, their decline has been happening for, you know, over 10 years now. And uh, yeah, uh, the, the the issue with them leaving ISS uh, is more on on the practical side uh, rather than uh, you know we need their technology we we need their you know vehicles because that's the way it's been designed but uh, many many nations worldwide have have leaped way way ahead of what I think the you know the Russian uh, space capability is uh, these days. Uh, this could accelerate our development or the, the West's development of the next generation of space stations. Uh, NASA has already started uh, working together with uh, a few US companies to uh, build the next generation of space stations that, that will you know, replace the ISS, not as a big monolithic platform, but uh, in, in the form of multiple stations and multiple orbits. Uh, that has to happen faster now, though, because, uh, yeah, we cannot be sure that ISS will be available uh, to, uh, you know, start building these new stations. It's always easier to build a new space station by piggybacking onto a, an existing uh, platform, uh, because then you can use the attitude and orbit control, you can use power, you can use thermal control uh, from that station. It doesn't have to be all on your very first module that you launch. Hopefully, uh, this this will this process with with the you know designing and building uh, the new space stations, the next generation of space stations, uh, will be fast enough that ISS will still be available as a as a base camp, so to speak. I'll just add real quick. Um, I personally, you know, if they want to build another space station, you know, one, I'll be surprised if they can make it in their two-year timeline based on the fact that there's been several cosmonautics day which is a big holiday in, in Russia. 
uh, where the president, uh, Putin, has given speeches about future vehicles, such as the Federation replacement, the Soyuz, which is pretty much dead, uh, as well as some other vehicles that have gone nowhere. Their protons are not launching very well. Their upper stages tend to explode a lot lately, creating debris. Um, and basically, if you talk to any of the, of the worldwide commercial or even military folks, um, the future is not in low Earth orbit um, from a, a national you know, security or a civil exploration. It's in cislunar space. And so if the Russians want to park themselves in low Earth orbit, you know, some people in Congress are concerned about that, just like they're concerned about the Chinese space station. Um, and I'm not so sure that's really something that's worth worrying about. As Jan says, there's there's a lot of push for commercial space stations. And I think the commercial industry is is working really hard on making that happen. And Chris, I'm really glad you brought up the uh, cislunar topic because yeah, I fully agree. This is where the US government, uh, both civilian and military should focus on because uh, you know there are, as we know now, uh, there are very useful resources at the South Pole of the moon, but only in very few spots. My guess is that the first nation who manages to set up shop there are the first group of nations like you know NASA and the, the Artemis program and the Artemis Accords uh, with uh, over a dozen international partners now. Uh, they will you know help shape the, the development of cislunar uh, and, and also translunar space. So that's that's something for national decision makers to focus on, not just for space exploration, but for national prosperity, national security, and and frankly, national vitality. We need a new frontier. And Chris, I just want to revisit something you said. You said that you know when the space station was first being put together, and Russians were invited and asked to participate, that it was in an effort to ensure that those rocket scientists, for lack of a better word, wouldn't go work for rogue nations. So that makes me think, well, in the future, will the U.S. ever cooperate with Russia again in space? I don't think that it's um, so much the United States' wish that we don't partner with the Russians. I think it's probably more up to the Russian Federation. Um, I mean, obviously, we we decided during the period of detente in the 70s to do a a test project to try to operationalize the astronaut rescue treaty to have a, a common docking mechanism. Um, now we have a, a common docking mechanism that's that's now a standard across commercial and, and various nation states. So I'm sure that, you know, once things get improved with the leadership in Russia and things eventually calm down again, whenever that is, sometime after Putin, most likely, um, I would not be surprised if if it, the hand is extended again for partnership, but because of the strategic situation as it is, um, with both the Chinese and the Russians, um, it their 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 efforts and their activities on Earth and in space are making it very difficult for us to uh, to do that. And lastly, um, this is an important aside. U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin is headed to Southern Command and Brazil. And Brazil does have a space program, and both Russia and China are working to expand their footprint in Central and South America. There's supposedly a spaceport project in the offing. You know, what does the Defense Secretary need to accomplish for space and security on this trip? So I, I would offer that he needs to just uh, 
keep the relationship strong and build on the existing foundation of cooperation that's already out there. I mean, most people that don't track it very closely probably don't even realize that uh, the United States Department of Defense and Brazil already have a number of agreements for sp space cooperation going back a few years. Brazil signed a space situational awareness agreement back in uh, 2018, which is, you know, I sometimes refer to that as the gateway drug to uh, security cooperation with the United States, because the first step is always, well, we need to cooperate on sharing information. But they also have a research design testing and evaluation agreement. Uh, they've got a major non-NATO uh, non-ally designation, and they also share space weather information. And, and they actually also conducted uh, the first high-level space engagement talks with the U.S. Space Force and some other agencies that had space equities. Now, part of that was just the timing, right? It's, that's about the same time that Space Force stood up. We have some other very close uh, allies uh, in the national security arena for space. Uh, so Brazil is one of them. I would offer that part of keeping that, uh, building on that foundation and uh, increasing the momentum is internal to the US, there's a lot of work that needs to be done on just presenting a, a consistent uh, face and voice to our allies, right? Because Secretary Austin is obviously at a very high level uh, as a Secretary of Defense, but there's a lot of entities under that uh, umbrella that we have come to call the US DOD Space Enterprise, uh, the current architecture, and that those voices aren't always aligned in harmony, synchronized, whatever term you want to use there. So he's coming at it from the highest level, but our DOD Space Enterprise isn't always good at the follow through on some of those high level conversations. So Brazil yeah, has, uh, has signed the Artemis Accords last year, and they have contributed to the space station on the civilian side. Uh, so there is there is an industrial base there, and there is a uh, strategy and uh, and an intent there. So they, they are a good partner, I think. Chris? Yeah, um, I was just going to add that for, from a strategic standpoint, uh, national security standpoint, is there are, as Bruce says, several entities that are already communicating with a lot of the our, our friends and, and allies down in South America, including the Brazilians, obviously. Um, the Brazilians, uh, one thing that wasn't mentioned is the fact that um, Brazil has a launch site area known as Alcantara that is a lot closer to the equator than even uh, the Europeans French Guiana Coru launch site. And that makes it a ideal piece of real estate for launching just about anywhere with a lot less energy needs than you would at a higher or lower uh, latitude. And so as a result, that's one of the areas of interest in partnership. Uh, the other thing is, is that if you look at a lot of the South American countries, um, several of them are, are heavily influenced by the Chinese and the Russians and for space activities, whether it's for tracking stations and things of that sort, um, as well as education and other, other forms of, of partnerships. So I think for the Secretary of Defense to be going down there is great. I really hope that the international and security cooperation folks are, are in the Intel folks are giving them good background on, on what kind of activities that they're working with, with other countries, both our friends and, and also those that we're a little concerned with about what's going on in our own uh, backyard, so to speak. But I think that, that Brazil being a, a large non, uh, non-NATO ally in the region, as well as other countries like Peru and Argentina and Chile that are showing interest in partnering with the United States. I think that's an opportunity that we should, we should take up and treats very seriously um, because we, we have a reputation of kind of ignoring that part of the world. And I think that's probably a mistake and that needs to be rectified.
Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Laura. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Uh, very interesting discussion. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow The Downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavus Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening.